like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, in the furnace. They know that God was able to save them, but they're good with it if he chooses not to. And so I think that's something that we should model our prayer life around. No matter what calamity comes into our life, God can clear it up in the snap of his finger. But are we good if he chooses not to? It is well with my soul, whether he does or whether he doesn't. This morning's scripture, Romans the 12th chapter, 9 through 13. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. The word of God, let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, as we come to this portion of Scripture this morning, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would shower down this message of hope on us afresh. That may we hear it and hear the words of this passage, Father, as if we have never heard them before. May we take meaning from them like at no other time in our lives, Father. We pray that your Spirit would guide us, give us new ears, give us new minds to be able to understand the wisdom that you have in, this, in these passages. And Lord God, I pray that the words I speak be not of me, but be of your Spirit and be glorifying unto you. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Psychiatrist and psychologists spend a great deal of time trying to understand human behavior. Trying to understand human behavior so that they can intervene and model it to conformity in one way or another. And they're always coming up with their latest and greatest theories or catchphrases or things of that nature. Helen, I'm sure during your experience you had several of them that you went through during the course of, of your occupation. And we've no doubt heard them throughout the years. It seems like with each new generation there becomes a new psychiatric or psychological catchphrase. A, a way in which we can bring or they can bring human behavior into conformity with what's expected of them with respect to this world. We have evidence-based practices. I don't know if any of you have ever heard that or not, but that's, that's a catchphrase. It's a way that they take research and use scientific research to help mold the way they go about the process of figuring out what makes people click and why they do what they do. It's sort of a combination of hard science and, and behavioral science and the meshing of the two. There is a cognitive approach as well. They think that we can change behavior if we take the time to help them understand the behavior and the consequences thereof. I'll tell you that it's been in my experience is that they all fail. They do. They all fail. We do a terrible job of understanding human behavior. Science 
has made remarkable leaps and bounds. And we've come so far in such a short period of time. But thousands upon thousands of years have proven we know virtually nothing about human behavior when it comes to the outside world being able to apply outside principles. It's all right here. It's all right here. You want to understand human behavior and why we do what we do. Don't waste your time on worldly ideas and principles and and ways of going out to figure out why people do the things they do and how they think the way they think. It's right here. Don't spend hours trying to teach your children a cognitive approach or an evidence-based practice. Spend hours upon hours teaching them the Word of God. Because it tells us Who we are as fallen people. Why we do the horrific things that we do. And how we can change. Through the power of the Holy Spirit and by the grace of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the foundation of human behavior, folks. It is God and His Word. And so if you really want to understand people, really seek to understand God. Really seek to understand His Word. Because there's far more to gain there than what the world's ever going to be able to enlighten us on with respect to humans and their behavior. So trying to unwrap the latest moral, psychological catchphrase is a waste of time to be quite honest with you. I see it every day. I see it every day. Spend that time understanding the Word of God or trying to understand the Word of God because it is deep and it is wide just like an almighty, omnipotent God should be. But it's a condition of the heart, right? Human behavior flows from the inside out. Is it a condition from the heart? And of the heart. Last week we saw Paul exhort us in that he asked us to let our love be genuine. And that's as far as we got in that ninth verse. Let our love be genuine. And there's so much to that. Let our love be genuine. Let it be real. Let it not be hypocritical. That's really what he's saying. Don't let your love be hypocritical, but let it be genuine in every way. In order for us to do that, we have to honestly look in the mirror. And those whose love is hypocritical and not genuine like what they see in that mirror. And I'm not talking about the proverbial mirror, okay? I'm asking you to be honest with yourselves or us to be honest with ourselves about what's in here. If we like what's in here, our love's not going to be genuine. We're going to think that we're good, right? Because we're self-centered. So it requires us to look honestly at ourselves and take an assessment as 
who we are inside. And we talked a lot last week about see verse 3 above. You know, you, you have those little footnotes. If this fits you, if this fits you, see verse 3. And those of you that were here a few weeks ago, we went over verse 3. Verse 3 was an admonition from Paul telling us, look at ourselves, examine ourselves to make sure that there's not a lot of pride within us. Because when there is a lot of pride within us, we can't get beyond verse 3. Pride stands in the way of our ability to love God. Pride stands in the way of our ability to love each other. We can't let our love be genuine when we love one person. Who's that person? This guy. Right? If all I'm consumed with is the love for myself and what I'm going to gain out of whatever it is in this life, my love's not genuine. My love is hypocritical. It's a joke. It's a lie. The reality is I'm just putting on a front for everybody else when the number one person in my life is me. That's what we can't be as Christians. Because if we are that, we have no relationship with God because we don't want God, we don't desire God because we have become our own gods. So before we get to this verse 9, we have to jump through this matrix that Paul is getting us, especially in verse 3, to look at ourselves, examine ourselves, take a self-assessment. How much do I love me? And Paul says we should rid ourselves of that pride. And we must rid ourselves of that pride in order for us to let our love to be genuine and true. We can't think of God when all we want to do is think of ourselves and how that benefits or something would benefit ourselves. Our love will never be genuine unless our love for God is paramount. I'll repeat that. Our love will never be genuine unless and until our love for God is paramount. And when our love for God is paramount, then Christ becomes our treasure. And he becomes the one that we're more concerned about even than our own lives. And that's the playbook that God has given us in his word. That's, that's what we as Christians should mimic. That God is paramount, Christ is our treasure, and then we can have genuine love for each other, right? We can have genuine for love for each other because we can see and understand and empathize with the love that God has for each and every one of us. And this morning, he's giving us another exhortation. It is the second part of Verse 9, he tells us, abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Let love be genuine. It goes along. I mean, I, I, I will say that the, the translators and, and whoever numbered the verses, they got it right because it all goes together here. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. They do mesh together as one. So Paul tells us to hate evil and love good. 
despise what is evil and love what is good. And when we look at this passage, we have to push back on this inkling or desire we have to make the things we like good and the things we don't like evil. It's not the way it works. But we like to work it that way, don't we? We like to take everything that we like and we like to say that's good. And we like to take everything that we don't like and we want to say it's evil. No. It's not what Paul's exhorting us to do or how he's exhorting us to go about that. We don't label or we cannot or we should not label things as good just because we like them or as bad just because we don't like them. Because in so doing, what we are saying is there's no objective truth as to what is good and what is bad. But the world labels it what they like is good, what they don't like is bad. Because the world will tell you that it's different for everyone. What's good for me may be different than what's good for you, right? Because there's no authority out there. It's all relative. There's, there's, there's no objective type truth as good and evil. I will tell you that liking things doesn't make them good. And disliking things doesn't make them bad. Or the fact that someone we like or believe in does something bad, it doesn't make it good. Or someone we don't like or don't believe in, they do something good, doesn't make it bad. There are absolutes out there when it comes to good and bad, good and evil. Paul tells us that here. He says there is good and there is evil. And he exhorts us. Because good and bad or good and evil both exist, then he exhorts us to bring our emotions into conformity to what that is. That's a whole nother level, right? That's taking it a step further. I don't like salmon patties. Anybody like salmon patties? Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with you people. You've lost your mind. Bacon, on the other hand... You all know that that's my go-to, right? There's nothing I can do to make myself like salmon patties. I hate salmon. I abhor salmon patties, right? That's an emotion that I have. I love bacon. But bacon is just objectively good, right? Paul's telling me, to hate what is evil and love what is good regardless of what I think about it. He's going a step further. He's he's bringing emotions into this. Emotionally, we have to change the way we think or how we should think about evilness or about goodness. What makes something good in this light? Not because it's sweet, sour, whatever. What makes something good? We don't have to go back too far. 
12.2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. The reason that something is objectively good is because God does it, says it, and wills it. The very reason that there is objective good outside of what I like or what you like is because God exists. End of story. End of story. If you want to see turmoil in the world, take away objective good and objective evil. You want to see chaos happen? Take away this whole notion of objective good and objective evil. Because then, good only lies within what I like, and it's good for me. The same with evil. It only lies within what I don't like, and what's not good for me. So in order for human beings to be able to relate to each other in some non-chaotic way, there has to be an objective standard for good and evil, and that standard comes from God. Without God, oh, there becomes an objective standard, but that objective standard only comes from the most powerful person, whoever that may be. They're going to impose your will on what they think is good and what they think is evil, and they're going to bring you into conformity therewith. So by saying that there is no standard of good or evil, the world is basically telling you there is no God. And they would probably admit that. Matter of fact, they would likely admit that. But without God, good would only be in the eye of the beholder and in the eye of the strongest beholder at that. Might would make right if there was no objective good or objective evil. But God does exist. And regardless of who's in power, regardless of who's in control, if it's Hitler or Mussolini or whatever the case may be, good is good and evil is evil, thus saith God. Right's always been right and wrong's always been wrong and always will be. There is objective truth in that. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Notice Paul doesn't just tell us to do, to choose good over evil. He doesn't tell us to do, as I said earlier. It's an emotion. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast or love what is good. Don't choose good over evil. That's not what he's telling us here. Although I... It will flow out of that, as we'll see in a few moments. He's telling us to have an emotional reaction to evil and goodness. Abhor. To be disgusted with. To hate, actually, is what he's telling us to do. Hate what is evil and to hold fast or to love what is good. 
Why? As we've looked at, because God defines what is good and he defines what is evil. But I hope that you can see the difference in this emotional response versus an actual physical doing. They're different in many respects. But he points to the heart issue, right? It's a heart issue. My heart tells me I don't like salmon patties. So it's a heart situation, not a doing situation. It's easier to do than it is to have that heart condition. Can I eat them? Absolutely. Can I grip my teeth and shove them down my throat? No doubt about it. I still don't like them. So it's a totally different situation to get me to love them than it is to get me to do them or eat them. So you can have somebody that thinks evil is good and they do something good. Right? What do you call that person? Hypocrite. Hypocrite. It's not that hard, right? We do things every day that we don't necessarily like to do. Things that we don't think is wonderful. So if I love what is evil, I can still do something good. We see it every day. We can still do good things and still like evil. So how is it? How can I do that? How can I truly hate what is evil and love what is good? Because there is something within us when we are born that grows and grows and grows to the point that we actually love evil. And we're disappointed in goodness. Gossip is a perfect example, right? How often do we talk to others and celebrate others' good things as opposed to how often do we drag people down and talk about evil that's happened to them? clearly demonstrates our love for evil and dislike for good. We would much rather talk about and celebrate their failure or when they get laid low by whatever the world has happened to them than we would to glorify God and thank Him and raise them up for their successes. Clearly demonstrates the fallen nature of mankind and how we so want to love evil and not like good. So how is it this happens? How is it? How do we find the key to abhorring or hating what is evil and loving what is good? The answer is pretty easy. We must be born again. Create in us a new heart. Give us a new spirit. Something that is not of me something that it is of God, something that has that objective standard of good and that objective standard of evil. Oh, Lord, help me to hate what is evil and love what is good. And I feel the church as a whole, we need to grasp this goal. We need to long for this today because I see us I see us taking things that aren't necessarily good 
and we say they're good because it gets us in a direction we want to be. It's a little hard to understand that. But just because someone or something does something good, we still should hate what is evil. The ends never justify means. And and I feel like the church has lost sight of that in today's world. God transforms us. It doesn't happen overnight. He transforms us from one degree of glory to the next. Paul tells us in Corinthians. So he tells us to, to let our love be genuine, not to be hypocritical, and that we abhor what is evil and love what is good. So he's given us direction when it comes to helping others. He's given us direction into reaching out with others. We do what is objectively good for each other. We love what is good. And we want each other to know that. And our actions should be in conformity with that belief. See, when we, when we do good even though we love bad... It's a hypocrisy, but that's the easy thing. But whenever we truly hate the evil, we're not going to do it. Then the actions follow. So when our, our heart is changed and our emotions are changed, that we, we hate the evil and love what is good, we're going to want to do what is good. We're not going to do what is good out of a sense of obligation or, or a sense of I don't really want to do this. We want to do it because we love it. I want to eat bacon because I love it. That's the point behind this. When we truly hate evil, love good, we're going to want to do it. We're going to want to help others that are caught in this web of evil. Unfortunately, we live in a godless society that thinks that whatever a person believes is good for them, and we should just let it be. Right? Don't interrupt what they think is good for them. Eternity is a long, long time. Matter of fact, our finite minds really can't wrap around that. We know the difference in good as Christians and evil. And we know what Paul's asked us to do. And we know how Paul is telling us to help others, and we have these precepts to do that. Evil destroys people. Evil destroys people on earth, and evil destroys people in eternity. And it dishonors God. So what are we to do? Do we ignore the evil because they are our friends? Do we coddle? That evil, let me use that term. It's a good term. Because, unfortunately, I feel like we as a church, not necessarily this one, but as a whole, we coddle a lot of evil. Because the world has thrown it back in our face so often and so many times. We tolerate it, we coddle it, it's okay. Let them do their own thing. Love be genuine! Does genuine love allow the coddling of evil and the eternal damnation of friends, relatives, and loved ones? No. That's not genuine love. 
And it is much easier for me to stand here and talk about it than it is in reality to do it and say it. But eternity depends on it. Eternity depends on it and how we deal with evil and how we react to it. Even our loved ones. I've, I said this, those of you that made it to my, my dad's funeral, you heard this, but it was, I don't know, a year before I called him up. I said, Dad, you're going to hell. I'm going to have to preach your funeral. And what am I going to say? You worked hard, you were a hard man, and life was difficult. End of story. Do you think those were easy words? Do you think that was easy to do? I mean, I'd been around him my entire life, but I knew that conversation had to be had. I mean, God had laid it on my heart so many times. From all the fruit that I saw, they weren't fruit, they were dried up nothing. And everything was the opposite of that. And I knew the burden that God had given me that that, that, had, that conversation had to be made. And his response was, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. You don't have to preach my funeral. And I knew that that was nonsense. I knew that. But I hung up the phone and it was kind of, sort of a selfish deal like, I'm done. Blood be not on my hands, Dad. A year later, he knows his time's close. And he calls me and says, I need you to come over. He knew the year before. But I knew there was a time when I couldn't coddle evil anymore. When right was right and wrong was wrong. And it had to be said. And I'm not lifting myself up for doing that. It was the Spirit of Christ that did that. Otherwise, I wouldn't care. Otherwise, I'd never make that phone call. But I got to be a participant in seeing my dad accept Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And I know where he's at now. But I question whether or not by coddling his sin that would have ever happened. I mean, God's sovereign over it all, and he worked it out according to his good pleasure and for his glory, and I I believe that, and I understand that, and I know that. But if we coddle sin, we never get to that year later, is what I'm trying to tell you. If I would have told my dad, Dad, you're okay. I mean, I know that you you do all this evil and practice whatever, but but it's okay, you'll be all right in the end. If I coddled him, he's in hell for eternity. Don't coddle sin, folks. And it's not easy. Those conversations hurt. They're painful. And I fully expected him to give me a good cussing whenever I hung up the phone that first time. But he didn't. But God planted that seed that reverberated inside his ears for a very long time. And I praise God for that. And I glorify him. Folks, we're his church. We're the bride of Christ. Ask Him to help us to abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. 
ask him to help us to spend our lives lifting people up, encouraging people, hating the evil that happens to them, in them, and through them, even in our own selves. As Paul says, the good I wish to do, I do not do, but the bad that resides within me, that I do. O wretched man that I am, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Amen? Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we fall so far short of this every day. Lord, we pray that your Spirit would act in our hearts. Help us to abhor what is evil. Yeah, Lord, it's easy to see those big things that are glaring at us in our face and say we abhor that type of evilness. Help us to abhor even the smallest amount of evil. Help us to not coddle evil, but speak out against it. Love what is good, pure, holy, and according to your will. We give you all praise and glory. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen.